Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, a weekly podcast on happiness and work culture. Hello again, it's Bruce Daisley, you're back again. Uh, this is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. You can find all of the previous episodes on our website, and that's eatsleepworkrepeat.fm. I, I always welcome people linking in to me as well, or you can follow us on Twitter. And uh, I did a, a really nice um, Twitter thread. That sort of was the word of two years ago. Uh, I did a, a Twitter thread over the weekend about the impact of laughter on us. And in fact, that's going to inform a future episode. So... Um, there's there's a few sort of pieces there and I'm going to have an episode in a couple of weeks just talking about the impact of team rituals and, and uh, the, the word that I've sort of become obsessed with, synchronisation. So you'll, if you go to our Twitter, that's Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, you'll see that Twitter thread there. So I think that is going to be an amazing episode. Some really good episodes over the last few weeks. There was a fabulous discussion with Dan Pink last week that I hope you had the chance to catch up on. There was obviously a brilliant discussion that we before with Anita Williams Woolley on the power of collective intelligence. And quite a few people have emailed me or linked in to me or tweeted me telling me that they they did that exercise in their teams. So just a really good team exercise. If you want to get people talking about how to improve your team dynamic, how to improve your, your work culture, there's really simple free ways for you to do that there. So, so go and check out our Twitter if you're interested in that. So quite often in this podcast, we, we focus on sort of workplace happiness. And I, I focus on one thing that could improve your work. The, the examples I've given there are good examples of that. Dan Pink talking about when to do various things. Nita Williams-Woolley talking about how you can sort of maximise your your understanding and your, your empathy of, of everyone, really. And, and this week's episode is probably one of the most comprehensive episodes we've ever done because it's someone who's devoted the last five or six years of his life really studying how teams work and understanding how we can... We we can learn from successful teams. It's a discussion with Daniel Coyle, who's the author of a fantastic new book called The Culture Code. This book's now out, so you can go and grab this. It came out last week. It came out on the 30th of January. So you can go and grab this book. And I have to tell you that sort of 50, 60 pages into this book, I wanted to stand and applaud because the quality of the work is, is just really comprehensive. And you're going to get some really clear models of, of what needs to work, of the way that you can adapt your own workplace environment. I think one of the other things that comes up in our discussion is we talk about one of the other big culture books recently, which is Patty McCord's book, Powerful. And and Patty was one of the early, oh, she was actually on one of my earlier episodes. She was on episode five or six. 
and she was talking about the sort of the Netflix culture document. And, and to a large extent, she's played a part in helping to shape the discussion about culture in in the most of the, the business world over the last 10 years, you know, searching for the, the Netflix culture document, you'll see no shortage of links and commentary on it. But we, myself and Daniel Coyle talk about that here. And we talk really about what we think the substances are of it and um, the, the climate and, and sort of what that does. But that's not where the conversation starts and ends. Daniel gives you a very clear perspective of what you need to do. I, w- I would really say that the the interview is a companion piece to the book and you know if, if there's one thing that i would recommend you do is pick up a copy of this book daniel was a an international bestseller with a book called the talent code a couple of years ago just really trying to understand the impact of talent and how we can cultivate and develop our own talent and he's he's taken that thoroughness of approach to putting this new book together so um i loved it so much i contacted the publishers and actually we're running an event so we're running a second event very cheap event 25 quid if you don't want the book 40 quid if you do want the book and you'll see that i've I've tweeted about that so if you want to hear directly from daniel about his experience and the way that he feels that you can bring what he describes as sort of the magic of great culture how you can bring that to your team strongly recommend you you pick up this book and the tickets i know there was uh, i tweeted it out uh, yesterday morning there was a whole load of interest so move quickly on that if you you're interested so daniel coyle his new book is out uh, now it's called the culture code and i caught up with daniel to talk about it here's daniel so daniel thank you so much for joining me i'm blown away by this new book the culture code the big question i, th- I think you set about answering is why some gro- groups add up to more than some of their parts and that's i guess the the cultural dividend that probably anyone who's listening to this is thinking about so what's the answer that's it. I mean, and it's funny to back up, you know, every, and it's so good to be here with you, Bruce. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, when you think about it, most groups add up to less, you know, when you look at most groups, when you really look at the sum total of talent and experience and charisma and energy, and you put people together in, in a group, most of them add up to a little bit less. And so I've spent the last five years finding groups that add up to a lot more, not a little bit, but a lot more, some of the best cultures on the planet. And was privileged enough to spend time inside Pixar and the Navy SEALs and the San Antonio Spurs basketball team and IDO and Zappos and a bunch of other places. And there's a, there's a pattern that they share. You know, we typically think about culture as being kind of this mystical, magical, it's in their DNA um, we connect it to their identity, their special identity. But in fact, when you get a bunch of humans together in a group and have them interact, there are some real certain consistent tensions that come up and there's certain systems that are in play. And these are places that have aligned their habits with the way the science of how good culture actually is created. So it's not, what I found is that it's not magic. It's not this sort of special sauce or DNA. It's about really specific behaviors that have to do with how do you connect people? How do you get them to interact in a, in, in a truthful and high candor way? And how do you get them to move together toward a purpose? Um, and there was one story in particular that you know really helped unlock that early on that I tell that I tell in the book that of course has to do with marshmallows. <laughs> it's too tempting to have had that offered to us and not hear the story. What's the marshmallow well, story? Tell one. It's pretty good. I mean, it, it, it's about a contest. There was an engineer named Peter Skillman who decided to kind of investigate this question of. Why do certain groups produce so much more than the sum of their parts? And he did it. He had a contest. It was The contest was very simple. It was to build a tower out of the following materials, uh, 20 pieces of raw spaghetti, a yard of tape, 
and a single marshmallow. The only rule was that the marshmallow had to go on the top. But the interesting part was the teams that he chose. He chose teams of MBAs, four-person teams, teams of CEOs, teams of lawyers, and teams of kindergartners. And he put them all in a big room. And I, I sort of like to picture it like they're on a big football field, right? And over here are the CEOs, and over here are the are the are the MBAs, over here are the lawyers, over here are the kindergartens, and they all get to work. And all of the adult groups follow the same template. You know, they get together like any meeting of any business meeting would, right? They they talk and they analyze the problem and they suggest some solutions and they hone those solutions. And it's like this perfect embodiment of human cooperation. Like it looks lovely, it looks smooth, it looks fluent, it looks organized, it looks great. The kindergartners do not do that. Like they just start grabbing stuff and they're shoulder to shoulder and they're interrupting each other and they're grabbing stuff out of each other's hands and it looks like monkeys, you know, complete chaos. And if you had to bet, you know, if you had to bet your life savings on which group would win, if you had to put it in a wheelbarrow and push push it to the center of the field and and guess who was going to win, most of us would not pick the kindergartners. We'd pick the CEOs or somebody else. And but it turns out that we're wrong. When you do this experiment, the kindergartners build a tower. The average height is 26 inches. The CEO's average height is 20 inches. And the reason that we get it wrong is that we fundamentally misunderstand the dynamics with which groups come together. We think, we focus on what we can see, which is smart people. We see smart, experienced people, and we think they're going to combine to be a smart, experienced group in the same way that like two plus two equals four. But in the CEO's case, two plus two equals three, two plus two equals two. Um, the kindergartners come together, two plus two equals 10. Because we, th- we overvalue smartness and we undervalue the most important dynamic, which is safety. I think this story blew me away when I read it because a friend yeah. of mine had quit a job in the last 12 months to go and become a chef and sort of learn the chefs, uh, the skills of being in the kitchen. And she said the fastest group, these, the, all the groups are split into different age groups. The fastest group are the 19-year-olds and the people she's with, she's in her early 30s. She said the the fastest group are 19-year-olds because they tend to learn about half the speed of everyone else. And it's not for any other reason than what you describe in the book as status management. Older people and, and people who are more senior tend to talk more to try and manage their position in the hierarchy in the group, try and manage or sort of demonstrate where they sit in the group and there were so many echoes of what she said georgina said to me of uh the the work that you've done here there's so many sort of echoes of your research you're effectively saying that we've actually become less capable in our working environment we find ourselves now less capable than we would be as as kids do you want to just explain why that is it's our wiring. We are wired to be keenly aware of where we fit into any social order. And as those CEOs show, as your friend's experience shows, we spend a tremendous amount of unconscious and conscious energy, kind of like a secret second job of managing our status. You know, those CEOs, when they're trying to build that tower, there's actually a little whisper in the back of their mind. Where do I fit in? Is it okay to say that? Like, where do, and that, and that takes a tremendous amount of attention, energy, motivation to sort of pay attention to that. So when, and it's our default status, we can't help it. You know, we really can't help it. This is why most groups are less than the sum of their parts. When we come together, we're devoting a huge amount of our attention and energy to wondering where do we fit in. Now the kindergartners are succeed because there's none of that. And the 19 year olds succeed because there's much less of that. So what this really shows is just how pervasive status management is. And because it's so pervasive, culture can't just sort of come in and hope that it goes away because it never goes away. The cure is safety. So they, they, good cultures send, they flood the zone with what are called belonging cues. 
small cues that send a big message, which is we're connected, we're safe, we care about you, we're committed with you. That warmth that you feel in good cultures is not an accident. It's because they are purposely sending those signals to create safety. And that safety gets rid of the status management and lets a group become more than the sum of its parts. And there's all kinds of cool science around this too, because, you know, for example, there's another story I tell in the book about a, about a company called Wipro. Now, Wipro was struggling with retention. They were a call center in India. And so they tended to lose about half of their workforce every six months. They did a, a tiny experiment where they changed orientation by just one hour. The one hour, instead of, they, did, they broke the group into two different groups. One, one group got the standard orientation, which was to tell the new employees all about how great Wipro was. They met a star employee. They learned about all the perks of working there. It was a Wipro-centered presentation. The other group went to a presentation that asked questions. And the questions weren't about Wipro. The questions were about the employees, the new trainees. The questions were like, what happens on your best day? What happens on your worst day? If we were on a desert island, what skills would you bring to our survival? So it was just, just an hour of asking the news, the new people, some questions. Seven months later, that second group was 250% more likely to still be employed at Wipro, to, to still be there. They, they had a sense of belonging. And that belonging wasn't accidental. It was delivered in those quick belonging cues. When you ask an authentic question, when you demonstrate care, when you send a signal, we share a future you're really doing something really powerful to someone's brain. You're sending them a signal. These are your people. It's safe to connect. You can turn off that status management virus that's sort of whirring in the back of your brain and you can connect. There's a couple of things in the book that I found really interesting as, a, as an interesting contrast. So in the, in the model that you've built, which is sort of first build safety, second collectively share vulnerability amongst yourselves. I guess one of the things that sometimes we see that expressed as is family. And you even say in the start of your book, often high performance teams describe themselves as family, describe themselves as having this sort of family relations. Do you think that word's fair? I, I, I've been discussing it with other people with regards to sort of working cultures. And uh, the word family and belonging is something that some people, Patty McCord, for example, uh, from Netflix, some people feel uncomfortable with. You seem, yep. you seem more comfortable with that sense of belonging. Well, it's more, I think you can also, you can call it a variety of things, but, I'm, but the feeling, how that gets expressed can vary. You know, there's the, Netflix way of presenting it, which is to say, hey, we're not a family. This is a team. This is a team. The difference is when you talk about the connection they feel and the connection they behave to each other, the way they behave to each other. And when they think about the sacrifice they'd be willing to make for each other, that's the metaphor that a lot of people reach for and the metaphor that a lot of people describe um, with that. Sort of interestingly, um, this sort of bridges into another another discussion, which is there's there's this this sort of impression that in a, in a great culture, everyone's having tons of fun all the time. I think that goes along with this sort of family idea that we're just having, we're just having a blast together. And that's not actually um, what, what goes on. I mean, there's kind of, there's a very deep level of engagement, but it's not sort of fun and it's not, it's not fun and games all the time. There's a sense of fun, but it's more like a deep engagement. It's more like working on hard problems together, a deep involvement. Um, and the feeling that people have when they're connected to a, to a strong culture like that is often, boy, sometimes I wish I could quit, but I just can't. The, it's just too fascinating. You know, I'm too connected to these people. I just, I, I hate it, but I love it. Um, 
kinds of emotions that come out when they're connected to that culture. You know, it's a, re- it's a really complex thing. To call it family is too simple and, and, and a term, but but it does evoke some of the um, kind of push-pull and the intensity of the bond um, is, is family-like. Yeah, and the thing that really struck me from what you said, how, how to cultivate that family or intense feeling is something that you can only create authentically. So one of the things that you mentioned is that there's this survey that showed the, the most valuable, successful cultures, and, and the survey was in Silicon Valley, which often just a, a great place to see lots of different cultures emerging very quickly. But you said it was a commitment model, and you described what the commitment model is. But effectively, that's where people are working to sh- a shared sen- set of values. And I sat there and I thought... Yeah, you'd struggle to find any company in Silicon Valley that doesn't espouse shared values. There'll be very different experiences at those different companies, though. How how do you ensure that those shared values actually authentically work rather than sort of just look like they're going through the motions of shared values? Yeah, I know. That's where where you really get... It's tricky because everyone's talking this language right now. Everyone's... Uh, everyone wants to present as having that sort of that sort of culture. And I think there's a few indicators that that make it that distinguish kind of the pretend shallow cultures. Let's make the world a better place and uh, and play foosball together with uh, a, a deeper, more intense culture that can that actually has that authenticity that you're talking about. And one is the sh- the, the leadership, the shadow of leadership. It's called the behaviors of the leader end up really driving the culture to a to a tremendous degree. And so when you have got a leader whose behaviors reflect these on a deep, deep level in a consistent way, um, then you've got a shot. That was one thing that I saw at all of the, the cultures that I visited. Their leaders were um, were absolutely the embodiment of of that culture, of that of cultures of care. Um, one one example I guess uh, I saw with the San Antonio Spurs, uh, Greg Popovich. Um, the care that he takes with each interaction with each player is is the purest distillation of of that culture so when you've got when you've got the leaders the other thing that you see in in a strong culture like that is that you you don't see any bad apples the the absence of bad apples the zero tolerance for bad apples the ferocity with which they defend their culture against jerks um, is typically very clear, explicit, and strong. So you sort of at once between those two indicators, a, a leader whose who's every behavior sort of captures and models that and a zero tolerance for even the most brilliant jerk um, because they want to defend that culture as much as possible. And I guess a third indicator would be that if you pay attention to the way people treat each other, typically the way they treat each other in a great culture is, is, the, is the highest priority. They'll prioritize each other's relationships over other pressing, you know, pressing commitments. So the way that they treat each other, if you pay attention to that, that ends up being another, a third sort of indicator that, yes, this is something that might go beyond the um, sort of surface appearance of, of good culture and actually goes deep into the, into the behavior. But the, the, the other thing I would just add to that, as long as we're talking about this too, is that you know, all these cultures struggle. Um, there's no such thing as a perfect culture out there. They all struggle with things the same reason that, you know, cultural fitness is the same thing as fitness for you and me. You know, it's it's not easy to sort of eat right and keep your mind sharp and exercise. And good cultures are the same way. They need to maintain their fitness and they will have bad moments and they are they will have very real struggles and they will be terrified of certain things happening. Um, 
But that's just part of putting a group together and part of being a culture. So we touched on it briefly before. I read your book back to back with Patty McCord's book. Patty was one of the instigators of the Netflix culture document. And he talked about it there. Not only does Patty overtly say that work isn't a family, but they almost deliberately go against your notion of building safety by saying, look, if you're not delivering here, we're going to fire you. And my take is when I see that, I, I question the evidence for their approach, whether whether it was just one or two genius inventions and that's made their success rather than their culture. What's your take on something like that? Yeah, it's, it's, it, it can, those things can coexist. I would say it, it, it's not uh, – safety does not mean uh, a, a, a complete, uh, you know, a, a military bunker from which no one can be, uh, can be taken out. Um, it's not perfect, perfect safety. Um, on every on every sports team, on every military team, um, there's there's a chance of of someone getting cut, of someone getting demoted, um, and that sort of exists on a slightly different level, I guess. Um, it's there. It's not part of the part of the I don't know the almost daily consciousness. I think good places try they, their cultures more of kind of using the interactions to create energy in a positive way rather than using fear. Um, those aren't cultures of fear typically that are really good. And when you find a culture of, of great fear, it typically, it, it can be effective for a while. I think it's, it's a decent lever, but in the long run, um, it, it sort of is a volatile fuel that sort of burns itself out. Uh, these places that I saw, um, even when someone was let go or when someone was fired or when someone moved on, there was the bonds of the group always sort of stayed strong. I mean, there still was a sense of team and connection because of the safety, because of the vulnerability they shared, because of the purpose that they shared. They had built that bond. Is it then? And I'm, I'm trying to uh, interpret this. I know that the metaphor of family isn't the right one, but is it like this fraternal or sorority thing where teams that seem to work really well, you talked about military teams, you talked about sporting teams, th there's this like certain servant leadership amongst the leaders. It seems to be characteristic in all those teams. And you talked about the sports coach who's sort of picking up litter every day, picking up, going around, picking up trash. So this servant leadership, this sort of leadership without ego seems to be really common. I wonder if that's what forges the bond between the members of the team, that you've got this servant leadership that then permits the relationship between the team members. Is there anything in that at all? Well, the, the leaders that I saw were very good at, you know, we have kind of an authoritarian part of our brains, right? That it wants to immediately fall into a hierarchy. And most of these leaders, as, as you mentioned, go out of their way to kind of throw a bug into that software. They constantly are being vulnerable with the team. They constantly are um, sort of confessing their own shortcomings and their own weaknesses to try to create what, what would be called a vulnerability loop when, when two people share the truth. Um, and so the leaders are the ones who, who set that tone. There tends to be, it, it varies by group. Each, each group is different. Some groups, the leader is a little bit, is a little bit separate. Other groups, the leader is, is right in there all the time. Um, but there is always that sense of we need to tell the truth. We need to open up to each other. And the leader is the one who's usually instigating that exchange. Um, as one of the Navy SEAL commanders told me, I screwed that up is the most important four words that any leader can say because it allows other people to share their screw ups. It allows people. And 
even more sort of fascinatingly, when you when you sort of pull the camera way back and look at each of these groups as an organism, like as a cellular organism with all these pieces moving together, they move in certain ways. And and one of the ways in which they move that creates vulnerability is they constantly circle up and tell each other the truth. You know, they con- which is really hard to do. It's awkward. It's painful. Um, it's embarrassing at times, but almost like an athlete develops workout habits, these cultures develop habits where at Pixar, it's called the brain trust. Okay. I was going to ask you about the brain trust now, actually. What, uh, firstly, what an incredible book by Ed Catmull in the, in the first instance, but the, the brain trust really is, uh, is actually not that welcoming, is it? It's sort of n- not a warm, happy thing. Do you want to talk about the role that the brain's trust plays at Pixar? Oh, it's incredible. I mean, every every movie goes through several years of development, and every few months they get together, they watch the d- latest draft of the movie, and this is a group of veteran Pixar storytellers, um, sort of the best storytelling minds in the company, and they watch the movie, and they circle up, and then they basically tear it apart. I mean, it's not pretty. It's not fun. Uh, the director's sitting there watching this thing that he's labored over for months and sometimes years, and people will simply say things like, I don't like that character. I, I don't think that plot's working. And it's, it's, it's very blunt. Um, and the one rule of the brain trust is you're not allowed to offer a solution. And the reason that that rule exists is because if one of these powerful people in the brain trust offered a solution, the director would just do it and sort of give over authority and give over control of the project in that way to that person who made the suggestion. So all they're allowed to do is point out flaws. So it makes it even more uncomfortable and difficult. And there's tons of silence and there's tons of awkwardness. And it's the best thing that that group does because that shows the path forward. That helps the director. It's really hard to build a movie. There's a lot of moving parts. This helps it more than anything else. Ed Catmull and the president of Pixar said it's the single most important thing that happens here. And he's right because it is mutual vulnerability. It shows the way because they're honestly confronting their weakness. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Yeah, the, the thing that really strikes me when you're going through all of this is if you're going to have that trust, if you're going to build safety and then allow people to feel vulnerability, and there's the leaders, and like you say, there's, there's the brain's trust, everyone's sharing vulnerability. It feels like there's sort of a finite limit to how big a team that shares vulnerability to, can be, though. Effectively, if you're going to make sure that sort of companies work well, if you're going to create successful teams within companies, then you've got to find a yeah. way to connect people in, in those teams. Do you have any perspective? You don't really talk about team size, but do you have any perspective on how big teams can be or how small teams need to be to, to adapt this culture code? Yeah, I think when you get into certain teams, you have to, you know, I'm a believer in the two pizza rule, the, the Bezos. Any any team that's bigger than can be fed with two pizzas is possibly too big. Uh, and so the sort of level of vulnerability that you'll have inside those smaller teams is, is order of magnitude higher than you'll get outside of those teams and bigger. So what you end up seeing is sort of a landscape, larger landscape of, of some, some safety with this intensely shared vulnerability, truth telling face to face, person to person inside those smaller teams to drive accurate behavior, uh, to drive, to help uncover what weaknesses really are. So yes, you're constantly sort of balancing those things, creating safety so that you can have vulnerability. And in the largest sense, you know, I think we tend to think about cultural problems in a little bit of the wrong way. You know, we every culture has got the set of issues. Every culture has got these little, I don't know, disorders, diseases, whatever you want to call it. But those aren't really problems. You know, those are biological requirements. You're navigating tensions that are that are part of being a group of human beings together. And those tensions will always revolve around, you know, do we feel connected? That'll be one big point of tension. Are we really connected? Are we really telling each other the truth is the other one? And, and the other one is what's our purpose? You know, where are we headed? So the idea that, that these problems are kind of, um, you know, more than just sort of systemic uh, can can sometimes lead you to a, to a false path. So treating them like, hey, this is the price of doing business. This is like an athlete training. Um, the leaders that you see in these places tend to be, they're almost like communication athletes. You know, they, they, they're compelled. They take a sort of craft person-like approach to it and they're very disciplined about it. And, and so that, that sort of model where you've got kind of, it's almost an athletic model for building culture ends up being, I think, a little a little more helpful than thinking, oh, we have these problems. One of the things I scribbled down was that you made reference to something saying the most successful projects were driven by what you describe as clusters of high communicators. And I guess that's what you're saying there. These singular communicators generally are the dynamos, the drivers for good culture. In fact, one of the things you talk about is how energy is contagious. There's a contagion of energy from strong leaders. That's right. You know, you, you have these people who are able to, they've actually, there's actually a series of fascinating experiments done by a guy at MIT named Sandy Pentland. Yeah, we had him on the show. No kidding. Oh, he's what a legend. He probably talked about these charismatic connectors. You can literally see them on his map moving and connecting and bringing that knowledge back and bringing that energy back. Um, oh, and we're in a, such a fascinating age with his work to be able to say, look, this isn't just a feeling. Here's the here's the experiment. Here's how many collisions we had. Here's what those collisions led to. Um, this idea that uh, when you take a god's eye view of a successful group, they all kind of look the same. You know that that they're all having these short, quick conversations, high energy conversations. They're circulating. Everyone's talking to everybody. You know, that feeling you have when you walk into a great culture, whether it's a great restaurant or a great school or a great business, that feeling is always the same. 
Yeah, but don't you think electronic communication is killing this? I know in the book you talked to Ben Wabba, and Ben followed on Sandy Pentland's work, and we chatted to Ben on the show a few weeks ago. All of it seemed to be sort of reminding you the magic, the singular sort of power of face-to-face communication and how we can create that kinetic energy. And for me, sort of the growing burden of meetings and emails upon people seem to be silently bulldozing that magic. Do you agree on that? What's your, what's your take on the impact of email? I agree a thousand percent with you. Um, you know, face-to-face is the original software. <laughs> it, does, it, uh, it, it works extraordinarily well. The research will show that if you make a request, if I were to make a request to you face-to-face, it's 34 times more likely that you would respond to it than if I sent you an email. So, um, you know, by that, by that measure, uh, spending time together is, uh, is 34 times more effective than spending time uh, communicating digitally. So, yes, there is an amazing tension in the workplace right now between balancing these things. And it seems like we are um, kind of bulldozing a lot of old-fashioned, better face-to-face technology for the sake of sort of swift, less meaningful communications. And we've seen that move, uh, that maybe the pendulum is moving a bit. You know, there has been, you know, many, several large companies who have recently said, look, we're putting a priority on face-to-face communication. We're building workplaces that will help prioritize that. Um, and we're really, we really do have a deep understanding that, that the magic really does happen when two people are in the same space. Yeah, fascinating. I do hope that people in power are the ones who realise this. I fully agree. I'll just finish on one question, Daniel. Actually, it was the footnote really at the end of the book. I was really moved by the story you gave of how having spent time with all these teams and all these coaching environments, you took on the task of of coaching a school writing team. I'd be thrilled if you just talked through your experience of that. Oh, it was, it was, it was cool. You know, I was, I was spending time, you know, going around the planet, you know, with all of these remarkable teams and, um, I was, there was, there was a team down the street, you know, my kids go to a school down the street and they have a writing competition, uh, where they write short stories and they get judged. Um, you have, you give a prompt, you have a short amount of time. And so I spent the year kind of applying some of these ideas, uh, to that group to see if we could improve the culture and the cohesion and the performance of that group. Um, now originally I set out coaching like any coach would, you know, I, I stood up at the front. I told them what to do. I I kind of evaluated them. Um, After I got kind of immersed in a lot of these theories of culture, uh, I ended up uh, taking a very different approach, kind of going from the side, trying to generate conversations, connect, trying to create a sense of safety. I was very purposely vulnerable with them, showing them my work and, and, and showing how many cross-outs there were and how bad I, how badly I struggled to, uh, to finish certain stories. Um, and getting them to talk and trying to trying to connect into their world and gradually sort of flooding the zone with a lot of really clear signals of safety, of shared vulnerability, and a lot of sort of catchphrases. You know, we see that with a lot of with a lot of leadership. I tried to kind of flood the zone with these sort of GPSs that would help them solve problems, just like I had seen so many groups do. And it was it was really it was really cool because what we saw was you know some on the kind of the performance level you know huge increase in performance we did really the team did you know sensationally well but even more kind of inspiring was the way it brought out the kids where they really brought their whole selves to to class and really connected as a team and a family by to use that word um, in a way that that I I hadn't expected so um, it was it was a good combination of saying look. Um, and a nice little test drive of some of these some of these ideas to say, um, hey, you know, 
And everybody at the end was saying, oh, this just is like magic. What a magical team. You know, we're still kind of this legendary team. And I want to sort of, you know, uh, on the one hand, I love that. On the other hand, it, it's sort of frustrating because I'm saying, look, it's not magic. It's just behavior. It's not magic any more than if we had, you know, really practiced at a, at a video game or at a golf game or anything else. But we just did. We, we, we followed best practices. We, we, culture is not magic. It's a set of behaviors. And if you know the behaviors, you can create the magic. I love that story. And, and hearing you retell it, I, I'm, I'm sort of loving it again. Actually, more than anything, it makes you realize, uh, sort of irrespective of your own work situation, you can have an impact on people who you sort of, like you say, down the street or, you know, you are in your, your social circle. You can use these things, whether it's in your job, whether it's in your life. Actually, these things can have an impact on everyone around you and the, the happiness of, of people around you. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're, we're built the, the, in a way that every interaction matters, you know, which is kind of a, you know, corny thing to say, every interaction matters. Well, in fact, that's the way, that's the way human beings are built. Every interaction really does matter to us. We react to all of them. So if you pay attention and, and maximize those in ways and align yourself um, with the ways that, that create cohesion, you can really make them matter a lot. Like I say, if you're interested in attending an event with Daniel Coyle that's at the start of March, you can go to my Twitter, which is Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Search for Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. You'll see that. Or you can see it on my own Twitter, but in and amongst pop music and opinions on politics. So you might not want to delve too deeply into there. But either way, you can find it. Uh, always welcome people linking into me and contacting me. And you can see all of the stuff if you're interested on the website. There's a full transcript of today's episode with Daniel Coyle on the website and that's eatsleepworkrepeat.fm I can't tell you how much I love all of your feedback it's really good to hear what you think I've done well and what you think I've done badly and we've got some great episodes coming up I'm trying to put these episodes together before I go away but uh, this a fantastic episode about sort of workplace changes that we can all do that's coming up some fantastic contributors there then there's an episode about workplace rituals and synchronisation and I think you're going to find that fabulous so some really good stuff coming up do get in touch speak to you soon Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.